It's a joy to be with you. Before we begin, let's open in prayer. Lord, we commit this time to you now, asking that you would draw near to us by your Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would be our instructor. We pray that you would uh, enlighten our minds and be glorified as we reflect upon the great things we're going to see in, in your book. In Jesus' name, amen. As Mark said, I have been uh, in Dubai. It's uh, the largest city in the United Arab Emirates, which is bordering Saudi Arabia. It's on the Persian Gulf, and uh, Oman is to the south. We're about 70 miles across the water from Iran, and Dubai is a remarkably diverse city. Uh, the statistics are that there are more than 200 nationalities in that country, many of which are unreached or underreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the street sweeper in front of my house every morning is from the Silheti Bengali people group of Bangladesh. Uh, my dentist is Iranian. There is even a North Korean restaurant in my city that's staffed by all North Korean white staff. And then, of course, there's the indigenous people, the Gulf Arabs who are entirely unreached, uh, the combination of Islam and oil wealth in places like the UAE and Kuwait and Qatar is a potent, deadening mix. So it's a Muslim country, and Sharia law applies. Proselytizing is illegal. But the majority of the residents are foreigners, so culturally it's complex. And among those foreigners, there are several churches. The sheikh, the ruler of Dubai has been very generous to us. He gave us the land on which our building is built. Uh, they protect us from people who would wish us harm. So it's a stable platform for ministry. So that's, that's the setting of our ministry. It's a privilege to be there. We're a church in a global city, in a Muslim country with unreached people groups scattered all around us. You know, one of the things that moved my heart to uh, desire to be overseas was reading missionary biography. And perhaps the one that was most influential in my life was a biography of Adoniram Judson, who in the 1800s took the gospel to Burma. Well, in your bags that you receive coming in, you'll re you see this uh, little pamphlet by Errol Hulse on Adoniram Judson and the missionary call. Anything you can find by Errol Hulse is worthy of careful consideration. He was a faithful minister of the gospel in South, Af South Africa for many years. And uh, allow this to be kind of an appetizer to a, a larger book on Adoniram Judson called To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. It might be the, the best biography I've ever read. So To the Golden Shore, Courtney Anderson, uh, Get Steeped in the Life of Adoniram Judson. Just last month, I was, dry, I was uh, traveling back to Dubai from uh, summer holiday, actually here in North Carolina. And I transited through a packed airport in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, with my family, and in that airport, there were lots of hajis. Uh, hajis are people who were returning to their homes from pilgrimage. They were dressed in Muslim garb. Many of them were reading the Quran. I remember one man just sitting across from me in the airport. He was committing verses to memory from the Quran on his way home from Hajj. Every year, millions of pilgrims return from Hajj to Mecca. Why do they go? Well, they're all on a quest for the forgiveness of sins. They all want to be cleansed from their sins. As one of their hadith, one of the authoritative Islamic teachings says, whoever performs hajj for Allah's sake only and does not do evil or sins, 
Then he will return after Hajj, free from all sins, as if he were born anew. So no wonder that more than two million people went on Hajj just this year. You can imagine the hopes invested in that pilgrimage, the willingness to put up with the stampedes that you read about, or the sicknesses. One man from Sudan said, we heard about the death of an aged Sudanese pilgrim due to swine flu, but we are not scared. We are all eagerly waiting for the great days of Hajj to win the blessings of God. They want to be made as innocent as the day they were born. But friends, the truth is, the human condition is much too dire, much too desperate for merely a Hajj. You see, Christianity offers an altogether different pilgrimage, not the one to Mecca, but the one to Mount Zion. The prophet Isaiah sees a vision of the nations on pilgrimage streaming up into the elevated heavenly Mount Zion, and it is that prophecy that we want to think about together this morning. Here in Isaiah 2, we have the divine forecast of the modern missions movement. So open with me, please, to the second chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, let's walk through this passage this morning, and then at the end two applications to the missionary enterprise, two applications at the end. Notice in this passage, Isaiah is not described as hearing, but as seeing the word. Look at verse 1, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. That means he received divine revelation, just like we see in chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah. In other words, this is not an, not an op-ed piece in the newspaper. This is not social commentary. What we have here is actually God speaking to us through the inspired prophet. And the day is coming, says Isaiah, when God's kingdom will be established in power and all the other competitors will be overthrown. Verse 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. You may know that in the ancient world, mountains were the meeting place between heaven and earth. So if you wanted to meet with God, well, you went to the mountain. Just think of Mount Olympus or in the Bible, Mount Zaphon. 
That's where archaeologists, even today, they still find sanctuary. They find temple sites on the top of these mountains. They were called the high places. So you went there to reach up to God. Even in Mesopotamia, which is largely flat land, well, they built their own mountains, the ziggurats, those big stair steps up to heaven. That's where you went to meet with God. So virtually every ancient religion had its mountain. But the day was coming, Isaiah says, when Mount Zion would become Mount Everest. Spiritual geography would somehow be shaken. The Temple Mount, also known as Zion, would be exalted and would reign supreme. All others would be silenced and humbled, mere molehills by comparison. God had given the law to Israel on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And now what we have here is a new instruction being given, a new covenant for the new people of God. Notice, even natural laws of gravity would be overthrown. Rivers would stream, not downhill from the temple, but what does it say? A human river would flow uphill to worship God. All the nations shall flow to it, up the mountain. Zion would become kind of a magnet, the center of worldwide attraction. And there were imports and there were exports. You see that in the text. Things coming in, things going out. Coming in was what? Verse 2 at the end. All the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come. Now, what a shift that is from the old covenant. Remember, in the old covenant, God was working principally through one ethnic people, the family of Abraham, the people of Israel, but no longer. Not in this vision. Here we see a new humanity has been created, now streaming up into the exalted city of God. One international people of God. They've abandoned their idols. They've pressed in to know the true and living God, to use the Apostle Paul's language. Formerly strangers and aliens, now fellow citizens with the saints. And notice the zeal. Notice the eagerness of these people. They're not being forced against their will. What does verse 3 say? Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You see, left to their own designs, these Gentile nations, they know nothing about how to live as God's people. They must learn his ways. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4 regarding the Gentiles? They're darkened in their understanding, so they don't just naturally figure it out how to worship the true and living God. No, they must come to Zion. They must be taught God's ways. And so here's a parade of people assembling, ascending the elevated mountain. There were imports to the elevated mountain. But we also see there are exports, things going out. Verse 3, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. People streaming in for worship and instruction, people flowing out with Bible studies and evangelism, missions and preaching, all going out from Jerusalem, which is exactly what Jesus forecast. Remember the risen Lord in Luke 24, what did he tell his disciples? He said, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And then the spirit fell from heaven and then they moved out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This prophecy was fulfilled in Luke and Acts and 
It set in motion a worldwide movement that continues to this very day. And brothers and sisters, I must tell you that I have a front row seat on this every weekend when we gather as a church in Dubai. It is a remarkable privilege to be a part of the United Christian Church of Dubai where we have people from Eritrea and Egypt. We have members of our church from Morocco and Malaysia, folks from all over the world, Kazakhstan and Korea. We even have people from Texas. (laughs) But all of us, as much as we love our homelands, as much as we may identify culturally with the place we come from, we don't any longer find our primary identity there. No, not anymore. We have become what Paul called citizens of heaven. So we're not fundamentally centered on our multi-ethnicity. No, we're centered on Christ. He alone is the only explanation that could bind all of those cultures together in one congregation. And he's doing it. God is building a people for his own glory, what Peter calls a spiritual temple. And what's the result? What happens when these temples are established? When Mount Zion finally reigns supreme? Well, that's what we see in verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not live up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So Isaiah forecasts a day when um, peace will commence, no more war, no more nuclear threats, even the mentality of war. It'll be remembered no longer. Well, this describes ultimately the new heaven and the new earth, that great goal that we anticipate as followers of Christ, a sense of shalom, well-being, that all is right in the world. Friends, this verse 4 is describing what you and I were created for. This is what we long for in our our deepest person. Outside the the United Nations headquarters in New York is a muscular bronze statue of a man who is hammering his sword into a farm implement, a plowshare. The inscription beneath quotes verse 4. It's right there outside the United Nations. But, you know, behind the inscription lies a worldview. It lies the inherent belief in the goodness of man. But I always wonder, I mean, can the UN ever really bring this kind of peace into the world? Is this talking about nuclear disarmament? Is it talking about peace agreements that may or may not be kept? It is only the gospel. It is only the good news of Jesus Christ that can bring this kind of lasting peace. This prophecy began to be fulfilled when that army of angels came from heaven announcing not war, but peace in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, the fundamental human problem is not educational. It is not political. The fundamental human problem is moral because God is holy and just and good And you and I were made in his image, but we have voluntarily turned away from him. We have radically revolted. He is a holy judge. He cannot tolerate sin. But the angels knew that the birth of Christ was the stunning announcement that God himself would come down and rescue a people for himself. Isaiah would call him the Prince of Peace, Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sin. 
and raised to life for our justification. You know, the Emirati people where I live, they possess staggering wealth. They built the tallest skyscraper in the world. They have uh, ski slopes and shopping malls. They built islands in the shape of the world. Sheikh Mohammed is reportedly worth 50 billion. But you know, the message that we have would increase their net worth by infinity. They'll eventually die and have to leave it all behind. But to know Christ, to enter this shalom, these are inexhaustible riches. And friends, this end time peace that is forecast in verse 4 has begun to invade the present. It characterizes our churches, not perfectly, but substantially and observably. Just as the Apostle John said, we know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brothers. This is a peace that has begun to penetrate our present age. It's not miracles. It's love in the local church that is the most potent display of God's work to people who are watching from the outside. So I would just ask you, this kind of supernatural love, is this what characterizes your congregation? Is there tribalism? Is there gossip? Is there one-upmanship evident in your church? John Stott observed, Christians can erect new barriers in the place of the old, which Christ has demolished. Now a color bar, now racism, nationalism, or tribalism, now personal animosities engendered by pride, prejudice, jealousy, and unforgiving spirit. You know, I, I need to insert a parenthesis here. Some missionaries in India are advocating church planting within the caste. You know, the caste, the rigid, hereditary, social class system. Some are saying, if we plant churches within that caste, then they're going to grow faster. It's called the homogeneous unit principle. Birds of a feather flock together. So it stands to reason that we should just plant among this caste and see them take off. So the national cricket team in India, you know, it's predominantly Brahmin. The Brahmin people, the elite priestly caste. So why not the church? If we minister only to Brahmin, the gospel will have less obstacles. It'll take off. You know, there's a problem with that. Do you know what the problem is? The problem is that church planting methodology looks no different than the world. Looks like the Indian cricket team. The great William Carey, the 18th century evangelist to India, he repudiated the caste system. He prayed that people would lose their caste for the sake of the gospel. Here's what he said. The Brahmin should receive the cup of the Lord's Supper after it has passed the lips of the Sudra Krishna, referring to a lower caste. Friends, faith in Jesus trumps all ethnicity. Ethnic pride comes down in Zion. Aubrey Sequera called that kind of pragmatism in India not merely ethnocentric, it's anti-Christ, it's anti-gospel. Friends, on the pilgrimage to Zion, there are no second-class citizens. One question about this prophecy. When will all this happen? It says there in verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, the latter days, the technical term in Scripture, that's when God's kingdom would appear. That's when the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established as the highest of the mountains. And the New Testament sees this begun 
in Jesus Christ and in the church today, but still awaiting fulfillment when Christ returns. But the new age has dawned. The kingdom has arrived. Let me show you that from the New Testament. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. While you're turning there, remember the book of Hebrews says, if you are a believer, pilgrimage has begun. Hebrews 12, 22. Speaking to those who have come to Christ, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So Isaiah by the Spirit, was looking forward to this messianic age, which the writer of Hebrews has said, has now come. So if you're a believer, friend, you have ascended the mountain. You've come to Christ. It's like Jesus said to the woman at the well. You know, she had said to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say we should worship on that mountain, referring to Jerusalem, in the place where people ought to worship. But Jesus replied, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Instead, a new Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Now, firstborn there in Hebrews 12, 23 refers to those who have the inheritance rights of the firstborn son, i.e. believers, those who have been adopted into God's family. So a parade of people would soon be assembling. You know, the idea of assembly is crucial in the Old Testament. Where did the most famous assembly take place in the Old Testament? Well, it was at Mount Sinai. That's where they received the law. And then three times a year there were assemblies in Jerusalem, the feasts of the sacred calendar. Well, the author of Hebrews sees this fulfilled glory, gloriously, not at Sinai, not even in Jerusalem, but where? Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Referring to that new Jerusalem of Revelation 21. So whenever we gather here in our churches, we're really gathering there in heaven where Christ is. Ed Clowney said, not only do we come to the assembly where our risen Lord is, he comes to us by his spirit to the assembly where we are. So every Sunday morning is a participation in the heavenly worship that we will enjoy forever and ever in the presence of Christ. We've come to Mount Zion. One day our worship will be consummated in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, admittedly, until then, war persists. We don't have perfect peace now, not by any stretch. Our marriages, our churches, sadly too often tainted by sin and disharmony. Jews often object today. They say, Jesus isn't the Messiah because this prophecy has not yet happened because there is still war taking place. But they misunderstand that the kingdom would arrive in two stages. Today is the day of salvation. Christ has come and inaugurated the kingdom. 
We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The nations are streaming in. We still await the return of Christ, the consummation of all things, when there will be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. So, friends, in view of the glory, in view of the majesty that we see in this vision, let's walk in God's light. Let these promises have their full impact on us. Isaiah 2, 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Notice the community flavor that pervades Isaiah 2. You know, it doesn't say, uh, you go up the mountain by yourself, and I'm going to stay here at home. No, verse 3, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord. Or verse 5, come, let us walk together in the light of the Lord. Friends, it's our privilege to spur one another on in the Christian life. Not individual Christians, but entire congregations are anticipated here in this prophecy of Isaiah. After all, why are the nations streaming in, in verse 3? That he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And where do we learn the paths of the Lord? On the internet? Puritan Matthew Henry said, God's ways are to be learned in his church, in communion with his people, and in the use of instituted ordinances. If we take God for our God, we must take his people for our people. People are streaming into Mount Zion. Which leads me then to my first of two application points. So how do we take this home with us? Let me just say, firstly, the church is God's evangelistic plan. That's what we see here. The church is God's evangelistic plan, not your missions agency, not your seminary, not any parachurch entity. I love all of those and have benefited enormously from them, but they're not the biblically ordained instrument, are they, for the advancement of the kingdom. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, he meant baptizing them into local assemblies. So the ordinances mark off the church from the world that's on the outside. Churches are God's cross-cultural evangelistic plan. Now, you might not believe this, but many missionaries actually downplay the church when they go overseas. People can go to such great lengths as to cross an ocean, move to a foreign land, obtain a residence permit, and then get there and ignore the local church that's already there. There's a breed of missionary that says the church is at best incidental and at worst even a hindrance to the advancement of their cause. Some think, well, I'm a pioneer missionary. I've gone out to make disciples among an unreached people group. So my ministry isn't in the church. That'll just slow me down. But friends, I want to suggest that's a short-sighted approach on any number of levels. Here's one. Today, it's a 14-hour flight from Washington, Dallas, to the heart of the Middle East. People come and go regularly. Not only that, but wherever you go in the Middle East, Yemen, Kuwait, Saudi, when you get there, you will be met by Christians who are already there, gathering and worshiping in Amharic or Farsi or Arabic or English. They're already living among the local people. You see, globalization 
means the mission's landscape has changed drastically since Adoniram Judson took two or three months to go to Burma, right? You take a 14-hour flight now. There are already churches there. Now, the question that comes from that is this. Should we expect that missionaries will be a part of a local church wherever they are? I'm not saying that frontier missionaries should invest all of their energies within an existing church. I'm simply saying three things, three things. Number one, missionaries are Christians too. They need the means of grace just like anyone else, right? For their own marriages, for their own personal growth. Missionaries too need pastoral oversight in the church. They need discipline and accountability. They need the Lord's Supper. They need good expositional preaching so that their faith will be fueled to give them staying power in their ministries. I remember after I'd been in Dubai for about five years, a missionary came to me and he said, hey, why don't you join a missions agency? And I thought to myself, I'm already a member of a local church. The oversight that I need is the elders who oversee me and the congregation as a whole. Missionaries are Christians too. Secondly, what I'm saying is that missionaries should be mindful that they model. Missionaries model when they're overseas. For the sake of the people they're trying to reach, they should exemplify a commitment to and an affection for the local assembly of God's people. I mean, how are the indigenous people going to develop a healthy attachment to the church if you don't? There was a team of missionaries meeting with a handful of Muslim background believers in Dubai. It was kind of a study, kind of a fellowship, but not a church. And these former Muslims were people who were claiming to know Christ, but they were under no elder oversight. They were not partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, they were not subject to the accountability of a congregation. Many of them were having problems. And yet none of the Western missionaries were urging them to join a local church, whether an Arabic or an English-speaking congregation. One woman, a Palestinian, was struggling with loneliness and depression, and a Saudi believer went to her and said this. She said, you know, I've been reading my Bible, and you need to come with me to church. I think that'll help you. And so she did. But it took the Saudi believer telling the Palestinian believer to be a part of a local church. The Western missionaries weren't out front on that. Friends, missiology needs ecclesiology. Missionaries should model the church. And then thirdly, missionaries should multiply. Missionaries should multiply. And here's why I say that. You know, I've been in Dubai for more than 13 years now. I've already seen a lot of missionaries come and go. So for my friends on the field, I often say, you know, in 10 years, you might not be here. Your missions team might be disbanded. But if you've been a, a fruitful member of a local church, you're going to leave behind you a brighter light than was there when you got there. Think of it like this. You can strike an individual match, and from that you can light a candle. Praise God for that candle. Or you can start a bonfire. You can attract the whole world's attention. Think of a local church as a bonfire, more so than an individual candle. Lots of witness, the display of God's manifold wisdom, 
multiplying influence in the city where you live. It may take longer to start a bonfire, but the light will still be shining when you leave. Friend, if you're thinking about going onto the mission field, don't downplay the church that's already there. Christy Wilson was one of the most respected missionaries of the 20th century that I know of. He was a missionary in Afghanistan for 22 years. Not only did he bear witness to Muslims, not only did he lead people to Christ, but he also pastored an expatriate church in Kabul, Afghanistan. In fact, uh, along with his wife, Betty, he, he recognized the strategic value of a local church among the Muslim people, kind of standing as a beacon of hope in Afghanistan. They built the only Christian church building ever permitted in Kabul. And through the witness of that church, Muslims began coming to faith in Christ. And so opposition broke down, broke, broke in. And Dr. Wilson was eventually deported from the country. Years later, he said, Betty and I were ordered out of the country in only three days. And then only three years after giving permission for the church building to open, the Muslim government came in and raised the church building to the ground. On October, July 17, 1973, the building was actually bulldozed to the ground. Wilson wrote, the Afghanistan government received a secret police report that there was an underground church in Afghanistan. Since they did not understand this term, they dug 12 feet below the, the foundation looking for the underground church. They exhausted all diplomatic efforts to save the building, and eventually they resigned themselves to it. And he said the congregation, instead of opposing them, offered them tea and cookies while they bulldozed the building. We need missionaries to stop over-identifying with their teams and agencies and start identifying with the local church where there's the right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of the ordinances. Come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord. Friends, following Jesus is a community project. It's not something to be done secretly. It was never meant to be done alone. And this applies whether you're here in the U.S. looking to go overseas in the future or whether you're there on the receiving end among unreached people groups in the 1040 window. Regardless, here or there, the church is the means to accomplish the end. If people are disinterested in the local church or disconnected from the local church, that's a sign that they're not yet fit for missions. In 1892, Samuel Zwemer established a mission on the island of Bahrain, and later he established a hospital. But not only did he establish a mission and a hospital, he also started a church. There were, at the time, no Bahraini believers, and that small English-language congregation was an outpost for the gospel. Zwemer traveled on the coastline, going up and down, uh, distributing Bibles. He would talk to people in public marketplaces. It was a hard calling. He once explained why he thought Muslims were so hard to reach there in Arabia. Here's one reason that he gave. He said, from the very beginning, the examples of Christ's way of life that they had, had before them were so repellent as to widen the breach rather than to bridge it. He said, Christ's way of life in Muslim lands has never won multitudes because it has never been lived out among them on a noble scale over a considerable period of time. 
bad churches are bad for missions. So if you're going to go evangelize an unreached people group, shouldn't you work to strengthen the congregations that are already there, bearing witness, showing people what it means to be followers of Christ? The church is God's evangelistic plan. And then secondly, and finally, my final application point is this, simply. Healthy churches are launch pads for further missions outreach. Healthy churches are launch pads for further missions outreach. Let me give you an example of that. Five years ago, we planted a congregation in Ras al-Khaimah, which is a, a neighboring emirate. It's right at the tip of the Strait of Hormuz, some 40 miles across the water from Iran. The Muslim sheikh there actually invited us to build a church building in his, his emirate. Uh, it's a city of 300,000 people. It's right at the tip of the Strait of Hormuz, as I said. Since the church was planted, many people have moved up to RAK. Some have come from the United States, others from Dubai and other places, in order to intentionally live among the local people who are much more populous there. Some church members there have been reaching out to the indigenous people, some have even worked in the sheikh's palace. One was the ruler's chief of staff. They're commending the gospel with their lives. They're serving well. One member of their church taught at a private high school there and had several Emirati high school students in her history class. And when she got to the Protestant Reformation, what do you think she taught them? The five solos of the Reformation and the five points. So that means somewhere in Ras al-Khaimah, there are some young high school students walking around who can recite from memory Tulip. <laughs> Every Christmas, dozens of locals show up at the pastor's home for an officially sponsored Christmas education event to hear the true message of Christmas. It's amazing what's happening there. Healthy churches are launch pads for gospel work. Now, I know many people naturally think of missions organizations when they think of the work taking place overseas, and it's true. These have been crucial players in the work that's happened over the last 50 years. They have pooled resources, they have pooled expertise, and made an invaluable contribution to the work happening overseas. But don't you see that in the Bible, it's the local church that bears the responsibility to be the bridgehead for gospel operations. You have come to Mount Zion to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. That's the church. Friends, Isaiah's prophecy should give us great confidence for what we're gathered here about this weekend. Just look at all those nations streaming into the elevated mountain Zion. Zion has become the center of all truth. So if you want to hear the truth, you must come where the truth is found because you won't hear it on Al Jazeera. You won't hear it on BBC but you will in healthy churches. Samuel Zwamer gave a second reason why so few Muslims were coming to faith in the late 1800s in Arabia. It's a sobering one. He said, the Christian churches of the world have never seriously undertaken the task of evangelizing Muslim peoples. They've never seriously undertaken the task. May that never be said of us. Are you willing to go? You yourself, are you willing to contribute to support the work of gospel advancement among unreached peoples? You know, whether you go to the Middle East 
or to some other place on the planet. Be part of making Christ known through the manifold wisdom of God that is the local church. Be part of a healthy church if one exists. And if one doesn't, start one. Samuel Zwamer eventually handed off the pastoral responsibilities there in his church, and for the rest of his life, he was a powerful recruiter for the followers of Christ to go to Arabia. He would go uh, all over the world advocating for people to just pick up their lives and go to Arabia, raising the flag for Muslim missions. One eyewitness of his uh, advocacy speeches said this about Zwamer in 1906. Dr. Zwamer hung a great map of Islam before us, and with a sweep of his hand across all these darkened areas, he said this, what Christ can do for any man, he can do for every man. In other words, no one is beyond the reach of Christ. No matter how hard the field might be, Christ reigns. And Zwamer believed that the church was instrumental to the cause. Zwamer's been dead for 66 years. But you know that congregation that he founded in Bahrain? It's still there, plugging away. I had the privilege of preaching there just a few years ago, and there were Bahraini believers in the congregation. Toward the end of his life, as an 83-year-old man, Zwamer returned to Bahrain just for one last visit. He'd been gone for many years by this point, and after visiting the gravesides of many missionaries he had labored with and even two daughters he'd buried there, he was heard to say this, if we should hold our peace, the very stones would cry out for the evangelization of Arabia. The true pilgrimage is not the one to Mecca. It's the one to Zion. The one to Mecca, there's no atonement there. There's no assurance there. And there's no church there. Friends, here is the true pilgrimage, forecast centuries before by Isaiah as believers from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation come together in a God-centered community, exhorting one another, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise that you have called us to a cause, to an ambition that is greater than ourselves. Lord, we thank you that you have supplied us with all that we need to accomplish that mission, and we pray that you would grant us faithfulness. Lord, deepen our trust in the means of grace. Lord, grant that our missiology would be informed by a stronger ecclesiology and that you would be glorified through our efforts. In Jesus' name, amen.